You might be asking why I brought this big old water bottle. It's, we're going to be here for a long time. I, 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 might, just, I might sprinkle you from here. I, or I might just get uh, thirsty. Well, I'll tell you why I'm going to use it here shortly. Uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for giving me this opportunity once again to address you this morning. Um, if you're able to stand, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We do have verses 1 through 4 and 14 that are going to be our primary text, but I want us to read 1 through 18, which consists of the entire prologue. Um, that'll give us an idea of what John is trying to do here. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave to them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you sent your Son, Lord, not just during Christmas time when we think of Christmas at the end of the year, Lord, but that we would focus on the message of Christ coming every single day, Lord, every single moment, because we need him. He is the creator and sustainer, Lord. He holds everything together. He is the glue that holds not only eternity, but everything together. And so, Lord, Hold us up, guide us, illumine our minds and our hearts. Help us see clearly what you want us to see, Lord. Help us live in a way that glorifies you, Lord. And Lord, give us grace and truth to live in such a way that the world may see that we are your children, Lord. Guide us and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the reason I brought this water bottle is because, not that I'm going to drink it, but, you know, if you think about it, it has a label on the outside, right? It says, Crystal Geyser Natural Alpine Spring Water. And it's clear, so it looks like water. So you would automatically be right, or assume to be right, if it was water. And if you were thirsty, you'd have to come get some water, or else you're going to, you know, it's going to mess you up in the long run. But what is if you drank it after you started drinking it? I told you that, and that was in water. It was bleach. Or maybe even salt water. So salt water is going to dehydrate you. So the only true thing, the only right thing you should be drinking is water. You need to have the right thing. 
So it doesn't matter what the label on the outside says, right? It matters what's inside the bottle, the contents. And that's true for us too as well. But primarily in speaking about Jesus, as we consider and focus on who the word is, we need to have the true Jesus. Because if you don't have the true Jesus, what do you have? Nothing. It's a matter of life and death. And it's the same thing too if you're thirsty in a desert, in the wilderness, and you come to a bottle thinking it's water and you drink poison, benzene, bleach, whatever it is, it's going to hurt you in the long run. You need to have the real deal. You need to have the real Jesus. And so there are many Jesus, if you will, that, are, that stand next to Jesus, but you need to know the true Jesus because if you don't have him, you don't have life. So again, we need to consider those things. And I know I'm in the Gospel of John, but I want to take us real quick to Galatians. And Paul gives us a, a warning, an admonition early on, because even in his lifetime and even in his time, there are things going on, right? There are false Jesus, false gospels coming, and he warns that it's going to come. But even in his time, it's happening. So that's why it's so important to have right doctrine, right understanding, the right gospel. He says this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and on. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. And we have said before and now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice, marks the importance of what he's saying. You have to have the right gospel, because if you don't have the right gospel, you're lost. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew, again, that many false prophets, false gospels, and false Jesus would come, that they would be preached. And like I said, in his time, heresy, false teachings were already on the rise. In the years to come, if you go fast forward, not very far, but a little bit fast forward, and even until now, we see during the time of um, 325, we see here Alexander and Alexandria um, in, in, uh, in Egypt. You see these false doctrines arising, and all of a sudden, that's happening again. And you have a guy named Arius who was a presbyter, a bishop, if you will, a leader in Alexandria, and he was uh, trained, but he believed some ideas. He got some ideas from Origen and then from Paul of Samosata and Lucian. And ideally, essentially, he took the logical conclusion of what Origen said, and he basically said, well, Jesus himself can't be God. He's a created being. He was a biblicist, meaning that he looked at the scriptures and he read them and he thought they were true. And so he argued his case. And hence, you have the Council of Nicaea in 325, where they come together Over 300 bishops come together to discuss this issue of who is Jesus? Is he God in the flesh? Is he like God? Is he different from God? And they had three words, homoousias, which means of the same essence, heterousias, different essence, or homoousias, which is similar essence. Essentially, as they got together, more than 300 bishops got together, they talked about it, and obviously the scriptures teach, as we're going to see here and as we read in John, that Jesus is God. Scriptures clearly teaches this. And so we need to know that because it's very, very important that we know that. And as you fast forward even further on, even into our times, we see Islam teaching a very different Jesus. He's a prophet, 
but he's not God, because that would violate Tawheed, the oneness of God, that God is one and he has no partners. That's to commit shirk, the unpartable sin. You have our friends who are Mormons who are teaching that Jesus is not just God. He's one of the gods, many gods, and a pantheon of gods. That's what they call henotheism. There's gods among gods. And so Jesus is not God. He's our elder brother. He's the brother of Satan. So there's, a, there's that particular Jesus. And he brings to you a different gospel, the gospel that was preached in the Americas. So we have another gospel. Interestingly enough, both of these gospels that come from Islam and from Mormonism were revealed by what? By angels. And didn't Paul already tell us that even if an angel comes and reveals a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned, right? They're blinded. And if you think about the notion and how angels work, well, what, what do angels do? They're messengers, right? That's what the word means in Hebrew and in Greek. They're messengers. And so good angels bring good messages, but bad angels bring bad messages, corrupting messages, lying messages. So we have that, and that's why Paul's warning us and that's why it's so vital that we understand what John is telling us here about the nature and the identity of who Jesus is. And not only that, you also have your friends who come to your door by twos, and not just the Mormons, but also the Jehovah Witnesses, who come to your door and tell you Jesus is not God. Jesus is a God. He is the first creation of God. And they're modern-day Arians. And so it's the same thing that Arius believed. And again, You have to be very careful with that. If you're a new Christian, you have to be aware that these are the things that are going to come your way to try to distort the truth of the gospel. I remember when I became a new believer, I was working at Olive Garden. Very nice lady. I remember her name, and I still see her. Her name is Brenda. Very nice lady. Worked in the salad bar. And uh, I started talking to her, and she would tell me, oh, you're a Christian. I said, so what do you believe about Jesus? And I would tell her. And she would say, well, Jesus is not God. The Bible clearly teaches it. And if you're not careful, man, if, 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 not just for being stubborn. I mean, I'm Mexican, right? I grew up as a Mexican. I am a Mexican. And to be Mexican, as if it's not obvious, right? I mean, with the beard, I might look a little Arabic. But, but if, you, uh, if, 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 you, if you consider that, you know, my mom and my dad would always say, I was born Mexican. I'm going to die Mexican. I was born Catholic. I'm going to die Catholic. I mean, that's just the tendency, right? So if, unless you're stubborn and you're fighting for the stubbornness sake, you're a little safe, but you're still not there. But you need to know the truth because if not, they will turn you into a pretzel and they will get you and you'll bite the bait. And so you got to be careful. I almost bit the bait. Thank God I had a lot of people around me praying and guiding me and, and helping me see that. And so those are things that we need to consider. So whether you're a young Christian uh, or a Christian that's been in the, in, the, in the faith for quite some time, make sure that you always know who Jesus is. That's the whole notion of apologetics. In fact, John's gospel is an apologetic. It's a reason for who Jesus is. He's telling us who Jesus is so that you know who he is, so you have hope. And in fact, we'll see that here shortly. So please be aware of who Jesus is. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Now, just something by way of introduction. We need to understand that when you read the Gospels, they're different from reading epistles, that is, letters. Those are different genres, right? Different ways of communication, different types of writing, whether they're music poetry, philosophy, you read this differently than a letter of Paul. So in order to understand this, that's why John gives us a prologue. But before we get to the prologue, I just want to give you the purpose for which John writes, and we'll get there soon. But John writes his gospel because he wants to tell us something. So what is he trying to tell his original audience, and what is he trying to tell us by default? He's going to share something really good with us, and that's the good news. Right? That's what gospel means. It means good news. 
So if somebody asks you, what does the gospel mean? It means good news. It's the word yonghelian, or what we get evangel, evangelism, it means a good message. And so it's good news. Now, why is it good news, though? That's very important to think about. We need good news, and you can appreciate the good news when you're confronted with what? With the bad news. It is only then that you can truly appreciate the good news when you have bad news. A particular diagnosis. You're out of money and your car breaks down and you have spring of water leak in the house and now you're like, what do you do? You know? So bad news, you need good news. And that's what Paul, what, what Paul does, but what John does here. He gives us the good news. We need rescuing. We're in dire need. We're united to Adam and Eve and therefore we're dead in sin. And God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And when sinful people come together, sinful people make sinful babies. And that's the fact of the matter, right? Like produces like. And so we're united to Adam, and therefore we're dead. We're dead on arrival. So unless you and I realize our predicament, we will not accept, we will not appreciate, we will not even see the value in the good news. And as I was saying a while ago, the good news of Jesus coming is not just for Christmas, not just for December 25th. It's for every single day. It's not for new believers. It's not just the entryway into the Christian faith. It's that which sustains you through and through. It's not that you get saved. It's that you get saved, you're getting saved, and you will be finally saved. It's all from beginning to end connected. It's only when a person who's on death row and they hear that they're going to get clemency of pardon that they actually see the benefit of this good news, right? And that's what we have. And this is what John tells us. He's telling us the good news because we're in dire need of saving. And in fact, in John chapter 20, I know we're beginning in chapter 1, but if you fast forward to chapter 20, he gives you the purpose for which he writes his gospel. And he writes this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, not just believe, but that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, he's not just interested in telling you stories, not just telling you stories about the miracles, not the miracles in themselves, not just to satisfy our curiosity, because as we study the scriptures, one of the dangers that I, I think is that when we study the scriptures a lot, we can get cocky, if you will, right? Because we know more. And we have to be careful that there's two extremes. One extreme is not knowing enough and thinking you're pious and you have faith that is not intellectual and then having too much understanding and then you think you're better because you know more and that's a false sense too. But we need to know. So here, John is telling us these miracles point to Jesus. They're telling you something about him. You need to know this so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you may have what? That you may have life. That's the purpose for his writing, right? Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited, anointed one. I would, you probably won't hear me ever uh, quote uh, Peterson's Bible, uh, the message, but there's a way that he says something in there in verse 14 that's pretty interesting. When it says that God dwelt with us, it literally says that God moved into the neighborhood, which is kind of an interesting way to think about it. But, you know, apart from other things, I think that's a good understanding of what it means that God came to be with us. He didn't just visit. He didn't just appear to be here. He literally was here. He moved in. And when we get to verse 14, we'll cover more of this. So we have here that Jesus himself not only happens to be the eternal Son of God, but he happens to be God himself as well. 
Not the Father, but of the same substance, same nature as the Father, God in the flesh. And whoever believes in him shall have life. This is what John wants us to understand. This is what John wants us to know. That's his purpose. And so as we move, let's go back again. I'm going to bring you back and forth. Like we're just boxing. I'm going to give you a jab. You're going to come back. You're going to go back and forth. So now we go to the prologue. We begin to the beginning. So John has a prologue. And it consists of chapters one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We just read them. So what's the function of a prologue? What begins the beginning? It's a beginning of beginnings, if you will. It's an appetizer, a taste of things to come. It's not only the entryway into the gospel of John, but it's the roadmap. It actually tells you what John wants you to see, what he wants you to understand. It's basically expanding. As you go through the chapters 1 through 20, you'll see what's in the prologue is essentially expanded and unpacked throughout the entirety of John's gospel. So again, it's introducing the major themes that John will deploy throughout. The prologue sets the tone. It foreshadows. It gives you the context and tells you what John wants you to know and keep in mind as you read the entire gospel. So for example, take these. He presents the themes like this. Here's a prologue, and then I'll give you in the gospel. The preexistence of the logos, the sun. You find that in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, but then he unpacks it in 17.5. The logos, the sun, chapter 1, verse 4, but he unpacks it in 5.26, the notion that there is life in him. He's rejected by darkness. You see it in 1.13.36.84.42. Being born of God, not of the flesh, that's in 1.14.18, but then you see that unpacked in 12.41 and even in 3.6. Talks to Nicodemus in 3.6 about being born again. So these are different themes that you'll see unpacked throughout. So that's what it gives you in the prologue. So I would ask you this. When you actually read the Gospel of John, you know, there's a saying that says any text out of context becomes a pretext. So you have to read it in context. But what you have to understand, too, with a, with a Gospel narrative, you're not going to see a clear-cut line of argument as you do in Paul's letters. You're going to see stories that build upon stories that build upon stories. And John is trying to get you to be face-to-face with God, with Jesus. And so when you read the Gospel of John, go back to the prologue, read that prologue, and then as you're reading the Gospel, see how it expands, and that's telling you exactly what he wants you to know. So as we move on, John's main idea is going to be this in these verses, that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh for our salvation. That's essentially what John is telling us here. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, became flesh for our salvation. Now, I'm doing a lot of introduction, but just some things to think about. In the Gospel, John's going to use various stories. Stories about what Jesus did, what he said, and how people responded to his message. The stories themselves are going to present dilemmas, symbolism and opposing themes and ideas like darkness, light, life, death, truth. These are the things that John is doing. That's how you can understand this particular book. And then additionally, there's going to be the essence of grammar. I know that I don't want to sound like a language arts teacher right now, but we have to understand this because in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see uses of the word that are going to be very important for us. And so we see that in order to understand what he's saying, we've got to Pay attention to the usage of words and to the order of words as well. That's going to help us understand so we can piece it together. 
With that being said, let's move into verses 1 through 2. And there it says again, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 2, in essence, kind of summarizes what we already saw in verse 1 and 2. So having read this sentence, what do you think is the subject of the sentence? In other words, what is the sentence about? The word, right? And it tells us that in Greek, it shows us that that's the nominative, that's the sentence, that's the actual subject of the sentence. And so John is later going to identify that this word is Jesus, the eternal son. But for now, he wants us to focus on the word itself and the word who takes on human form. But the word at this moment in time, he's talking about, what does he say? In the beginning was the word. Now, this is important because it's pointing to the fact that when the beginning began, the word already was. He was there in the beginning. It's like the word became or came to exist. This takes us back all the way to the beginning, right? Not just to his gospel, but to Genesis, to the idea that when God created, the word already existed. So what is he doing here? He's telling us that he is preexistent. Right? At this moment in time here, he's still not telling us much, but he's telling us that the word already existed in the beginning. The term was is the past tense of the verb to be. To be is what we call a stative verb. It, it tells you, it doesn't give you an action, but it tells you a condition or a state of something. So that's why we have to understand that it's not a action, it's telling you something about the word. So in this case, it's telling us about its condition, its, its state, right? That it always existed. When the beginning began, the word is before all things. Now, when you read this, it takes you back to the exact words of Genesis, and that's what actually John is trying to do. He's taking us back all the way to Genesis in order to get us to understand that this word is going to be connected in some form, somehow, to God. Because in the beginning, what happened? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So not only, like I said, is he pointing us back to Genesis, he takes us further into eternity past. This beginning is the moment when energy, matter, space, and time literally begin. This word not only preexisted before the creation, but the word was with God. So this is interesting to note too. Not just existed, but was with God. There's a distinction that John is making here. He's trying to tell us something. This word that existed was with God. So we have a distinction here that he's going to connect with verse 3. In verse 3, he's going to tell us that the word was God. So how can the word be with God and be God at the same time? Because if you hear that, what comes to mind? Well, that's a contradiction. How can you be with something, with God, and be God at the same time? So this is pointing us back to eternity past where we see the personality of the logos, the word of God, who is always with God, toward God, it almost points to the idea of intimacy, that the Son, which we're going to see in verse 14, is this word, and this word is facing God. In this case, we're talking about the Father. So the word was with God. And John is doing this very importantly. For what reason? Because John wants us to understand that when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, that the word is not identical to God in terms of he's not the Father. He's giving you a distinction. He's wanting you to know that the word that was is separate from the Father, but he's not the Father. 
So if you look at the order of the grammar, he helps us understand this. He doesn't write that the word was a God or that the word was the God. This is very important. That's why I said the grammar here can be a little tedious, but it's important to understand. He says the word was with God, not that the word was the God. Because if he said that the word was the God, he would say that the Father and the Son are the same person, which would introduce the heresy of modalism. And that's a problem. We can't have that. He doesn't write that the word was a God, because what would that do? That would give us Arianism, that there's a semi-created divine God, second to God, but there's only one God. The scriptures tell us there's only one God. So he tells us that the word was with God, and the word was God. He's giving us the idea that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together, but here, specifically talking about God and the Son, the Father. So God and his word are always together. Now, in this case, when we see this, we see that from the beginning, John wants you to understand and wants me to understand that this word is God himself. And this is important because I told you a while ago that when you're confronted with Jehovah Witnesses and anybody else, they will tell you that Jesus is not God, that he's a God. But the text doesn't make any provision for this. If we understand the text to say that, then there is no salvation. Athanasius would say that if Jesus is not God, you cannot be saved because you cannot have salvation through a third party. God is the offended party. God is the one that's been sinned against. So therefore, God alone is the only one who can forgive you. And God is the only one who can bear the burden. God is the only one who can forgive because he's the offended party. If Jesus was an angel as Arius taught or as... um, Jehovah Witnesses teach, what would happen? You couldn't be saved. You need to go to the one who's, who you sinned against. That's why. Now, John is providing us with the categories of how to think correctly about God. We need to know that the word was with God and the word was God. As you move forward towards the council of not only Nicaea, which tells us that Jesus is God, In 451, you have the Council of Chalcedon. In the Council of Chalcedon, there we see this. Now, it reads interestingly here, but we need to understand this is exactly what John is telling us. As the people met, they were trying to make sure that they wouldn't conflate, they wouldn't mix, they wouldn't confuse who Jesus is. And so this is the creed that we get from the Council of Nicaea, or Council of Chalcedon. It says this, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men, to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. So what is he saying there? He's of the same kind. He's fully human. He's fully God. Begotten before all the ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these days, for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. The concurring in one person, the subsistence. So he's telling us this. This Jesus has to be 
God, but he's not the Father. So what we see here is this, to make it simpler. The theologian Fred Sanders gives us something called the Chalcedonian box. And this is what John is telling us, but in the Chalcedonian box, it gives us the parameters of how to think of God. So we have this four boxes, four sides of the box, if you will. Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly man. Jesus is one person, and Jesus is two natures, has two natures. Why is this important? Well, it helps us avoid heresy. If we can affirm what the scriptures say, that Jesus is truly God, then we don't commit the heresy of Arianism, that we say that Jesus is not divine, that Jesus is not God. And if Jesus is not God, you can't be saved. Where do you see that, right? So the fact that Jesus is truly God shows us that he's divine and that we can be saved and avoids the heresy of Arianism. If we say that Jesus is truly human, we have to admit that because why did he become human? That's the whole point of the incarnation. He comes to be one of us. He has to be what we are, minus sin. That's the whole point of the incarnation. That's the whole point of coming. If he doesn't come and be one of us, then there can be no salvation. Because who sinned? We sinned. And that's why we find ourselves in the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And if humans sin, who has to fix the problem? A human does. But no mere human can fix the problem. So it has to be somebody, because we're united to Adam. There has to be somebody, the new Adam, Christ, who alone is God, but also is truly human, who will unite himself to us, or we will unite ourselves to him through faith by the Holy Spirit. So he has to be truly human, because if Jesus is not truly human, then you cannot be saved, and I cannot be saved. And this avoids the heresy of Apollinarianism, which teaches that Jesus was not truly human, but only two parts human. But Jesus has to be truly human in every aspect, or else we can't be saved. And the notion of these two natures, Jesus has to be truly God and truly human, because those are the natures that the Scriptures give us. He's not one nature mixed together. He's not a third type of a thing. There's that connection that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, and he has to be both. Because only God alone can pay the price. Only God alone can sustain the wrath. And again, it's humans who have to pay that payment. And he's one person. There's not another person. There's only one person who exists in those two natures. So by staying within the walls of this four boxes, or the box with the four sides, we can avoid the heresies uh, that we talked about right now. Now in verse 3, it says that all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Here John is telling us that Jesus, or the Word, and i got to be careful with this, because many times when we talk about Jesus, we talk about Jesus creating everything, and that's true. But at this moment in time, the Word is the one who created so it is true that the word is Jesus, but we've got to be careful not to anachronistically speak. So we can say that, but technically speaking, before the word became one of us, he created. So Jesus wasn't up there and then he came down here. Jesus is the one who was born. Does that make sense? He's the, that's the human nature that the logos took. So the word is the agent of creation. He is the creator of everything and anything that exists and begins to exist. Now, in the Old Testament, this points us back to the Word of God, which is active, powerful in creation. We see that in the Old Testament, where it says, God spoke and it was. We see that in Genesis, in Psalms, that when God speaks, things happen. God is speaking power. God is power. The Word creates. 
When God speaks, things happen. God brings existence into being. God is existence in itself. The writer of Hebrews echoes John's words and connects us together and tells us that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. So we see this notion of speaking. So communicating with his people and communicating with us. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance and glory of, the, of God and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, that's interesting right there. Not only does the Son or is the Son the agent of creation, the one through whom God creates, and God speaks his word and things happen, and God communicates to the old and to us now, but the word itself, not only by virtue of being creation and having life in himself, sustains everything. He is the glue that holds everything together. And he brought existence out of nothing, what they call ex nihilo. He created all that exists out of nothing. That shows you not only that the word creates, but that the word is extremely powerful, that is divine-like. And not only that does he create, but that, think about this, nothing that exists can exist apart from him. The fact that you and I can breathe, the fact that you and I can have a heart beating, the fact that you and I are alive today means that he sustains us. In, in Colossians, it talks about how he is the glue that holds everything together. And apart from him, nothing can exist. And he created everything that begins to exist. Now, contrary to Jehovah Witness teaching that the Son was created, the Word was only an agent of creation, we know that the Word was the agent of creation. Now, think with me for a moment. When they tell you that, that the word was created, that, that Jesus was created, how could it be that the word created itself? Because it says there that he created all things and all things were made by him. So it wouldn't make sense to say that the word was created or created itself when it didn't exist. If it's the creating agent, that thing by which everything is created and everything by definition includes everything, and if the word was created or if Jesus was created as a angel, how could it create itself if it's that which creates everything because he would be part of everything? So when you start breaking it down, it makes no sense. We have to understand that he is the creator of the universe. So everything that begins to exist owes its existence to something else, something other than itself. In the physical sense, I owe my existence to my dad and my mom, and they owe theirs to their mom and their dad, and so on and so on. But ultimately speaking, God created all of humanity, and therefore we all owe our existence to him. And if that's the case, by way of application, what do we think about that? If God is creator, sustainer, then the question would be, are you and I living in a way that acknowledges him as creator, as sustainer, as God, the one who has all power and authority? That's something we need to consider. Because we can pay lip service to the fact that he is God, that he created us, right? We call him Father, but do we do what he says? He is our creator, our maker, and therefore we belong to him. Not only do we belong to him by virtue of being created, but the scripture tells us in Acts that God bought us with his blood. So we're his doubly. And he is our father if we are his children. So are you living in a manner that gives him glory as your God and creator? Now, in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here we understand that he is the very source of life. 
Nothing, again, that we said that came into being can be without him. Given that he is God and the source of life, we owe our existence the very breath that you have to him. In John 14, 6, Jesus tells us, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you would have known my Father also. So he is the life. Life inheres in him. He is the very source of life. And so when we think about this, you and I are alive right now, physically speaking, because he is the source of life. He enables every heartbeat that you have, every breath that you take, every step that you take, every bite that you take. He enables you to have that. But in the same token, we are born physically, but we need a second birth because he said, the moment that you eat of it, you shall die. So we're born spiritually dead, dead on arrival. And as you start seeing John unpack this in John chapter 3, you see what he's telling Nicodemus, that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God. This is only an expansion of what we see in John chapter 1, verse 12, where he says that those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of the will of man or of the flesh or of blood, but they were born of God. So we see that we need to be born a second time or born from above spiritually because we're born dead. We're spiritually dead. And so because he is life, not only is he life, physical life, but spiritual life. And how can you have that spiritual life? Well, that's why he came, to be, so that we could be united to him. He became what we are minus sin so that we could become what he is by grace, sons of God. That life can only come from him. You also see this in John chapter 5, verses 26. He says, Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now thinking back again concerning verse 1, verse 2, that he is God, and verse 3, that he is the source of life, how could it be that a mere creation can be the source of life? It cannot be. God himself is life. And the fact that here Jesus tells us that he has been granted to have life in himself, it's only an extension of what happens up there. When you consider the life of God before he comes to the world, this is what John is talking about, pre-existence. Now, John begins at the beginning. That's understood. But before the beginning, what was God doing? He was loving himself, right? The Father loving the Son through the Spirit and the Son loving the Father through the Spirit in a unity of love. But before that, we see that the Son is eternally proceeding from the Father. The Son comes from the Father. God is a source. The Father is a source of the Son. The Son never begins to exist, but he has life because the Father has life. The Son is united to the Father in such a way that he has life in himself. So from all eternity, he's always had life. He is life itself. When he comes down, see the Father and the Son, the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. They're coming down. They come to us. That's what's been happening in all eternity. The, father, the Son comes from the Father from all eternity. It's what we call eternal generation. He's always coming from the Father. There never was a time when he wasn't, and when he wasn't proceeding from the Father. In the same way, that's the blueprint for what happens here. When he comes to earth, he's being sent. He's coming again from the Father. 
Jesus tells us this in John chapter 17, but he's coming and he has with him life. And so when he tells us here that he has life in himself and that the Father has granted the Son to have life, well, he's only granting him to have what he already had. So what is true of there, he has it here as well. In the Son, there is life. Without the Son, there is no life. That's why John tells us elsewhere, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God has, doesn't have life. So again, what Jesus do you and I have? We have the true and living God, the true and living Jesus, who is the source of life. If you don't have Jesus, you cannot have life. He is the source of life. We need him for everything. As we move on to verse 14, here is where John essentially just, if you will, loses it and just lets go and he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, I keep mentioning this, this whole notion of the message of Christmas, not just Christmas, but for every day. The gospel, again, is not just for beginners. It's for all of us, all the step of the way. God is none other than the Son of God who came from the Father. It was the perfect time when he came. That's when he came, right? In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he tells us this. Paul tells us, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see what he did? God sent forth his Son. That's exactly what Jesus tells us in John chapter 17. When the fullness of time had come, what is he talking about the fullness of time? What's the exact time that God had determined to send the Son? What is this time consist of? It consists of the Roman Empire holding control of the entire region, the Greek influence with the philosophy, the metaphysics, and you have the Jewish categories of the moral law and the glory of God. At the fullness of time, we have not only the crucifixion, which was invented by the Medes and the Persians, but mastered by the Romans, that Jesus himself would come for that reason. He doesn't just come to live. He comes to die. He doesn't just come to die. He comes to rise again. The incarnation all points to this, and this is the reason for the coming again. So he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. From eternity sends the son. Born of a woman, the incarnation. And I tell the youth group, incarnation, in the carne, in the meat, in the carne. So he's in the meat, right? Now, when we say that, be very careful to understand that Jesus, or the Word, the eternal Son of God, doesn't stop being who he was from all eternity. He's always been the eternal Son, God in the flesh. When he comes and becomes one of us, the idea is not of changing nature, but adding something to himself, something that he never was before. And that's where God himself is not afraid to get dirty. He moves into the neighborhood. He takes on a human nature, like you and me, minus the sin. For what reason? To die for our sins. But not just to die for our sins, to show that he is the long-awaited one, the Messiah, the God who actually created you and me, the God who tabernacled in the wilderness. In fact, that's what the word means, to dwell. It literally means to pitch a tent. That's the word that he gives us in the Old Testament when Israel was in the wilderness and he was pitching a tent. The idea of pitching a tent, you might think, well, we go camping and we pitch a tent, but we're only there for a little while. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is that he's pitching a tent to be close with us. Where did God meet with the Israelites before the temple? In the tent. That's where he met with them. And it's about holy space, proximity. That's the idea that we see here. So you see the son being towards the father, with the father, that intimacy. Now the son comes 
And what does he come for? Not just to die and rise again, but to reveal the Father, right? He's revealing the Father. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He reveals the Father. He comes to be with us. So God himself come and dwells with us for a moment, at least at that time, and he will come again. So he's born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, which is us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, the same word that uh, John uses here, he uses again in Revelation 21.3. And he says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. Again, that's that same Greek word. God is dwelling with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's interesting that he doesn't say we'll be up there with him. This is at the end, the eternal state, when he actually comes down again. Look at that. So he comes down the first time, full of grace and truth, revealing the glory of God. And again, think about this glory. What was the glory? The weightiness. The glory, the shining glory, the Shekinah of God, that when they entered into the, into the Holy of Holies, you could see that glory. And you see Moses asking God, show me your glory. And God doesn't show him his glory, right? He hides him in the cleft because he can't see it. But all of a sudden, John here He's telling us that God will dwell with us, pointing back not only to the tabernacle, not only to the cleft where God appears, if you will, and shows Moses' back, but he actually, when Jesus comes, he reveals the Father's glory, but then when Jesus is transfigured and they see his glory, and now he's telling us that we have seen his glory, all of this pointing to the fact that God has come and is with us. And so... The dwelling place of God, he comes again, he will come again with us, to be with us forever. The whole idea of Jesus coming, the whole idea of the word becoming flesh is again to unite us to himself. We are in two stages, in the stage of Adam or the life of Adam and the life of Jesus. Whoever is united to Adam is dead spiritually. Whoever is united to Christ has life. That's why he said, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So why did the Son come? Why did the Son come? To reveal the Father. Not just to reveal the Father, but to be one of us, to take our place, to do what we could not do, to fix the problem that we got ourselves into. God didn't have to do this, but he showed his love and his mercy. And that's why he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the love that God shows us. So the whole idea of God coming is not just to be present, but to be present, to give life, to show himself. God is a giving God. He gives life. He gives of himself for you and for me. And that shows us something. He was full of grace and truth. So then the question we need to ask ourselves is, what can we do to think more about what we're talking about, to think more about what is this message about? What is Jesus about? We need to think about daily. We need to have the right Jesus Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. So then how do we get to know him? Well, the same way, to, the way, same way you get to know your spouse, the same way that you get to know your children, by spending time with them, right? By reading the scriptures, by spending time with him in prayer, but also by emulating him, right? Because Jesus says, if you call me Lord, do what I say. If you love me, you obey my commands. So do we love him? And in connecting this in some degree to the messages we've been hearing, are we being who Christ wants us to be? Are we doing what he wants us to do? Are we loving one another as he wants us to love one another? 
Are we holding our preferences above others? And it's interesting that he says grace and truth. You know, many times I learned this from a good friend of mine, and he reminds me of this every time, and I thank him for this. And the idea is that many times we, we're good about sharing the truth, right? In fact, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about as we deal with Jehovah Witnesses and Muslim and Mormons is that we can share the truth, but we do so in an abrasive manner. We don't do so with grace. And either one is, an, is a problem, right? If you show too much kindness, you compromise truth. But if you're very blunt and just share the truth and just demolish them with the truth and don't show grace, then how are we being Christ-like? So a method or an application we can understand from this is that Jesus himself, think about this in Philippians 2, he comes down, right? Again, you see this from beginning to end, that he comes down, being God, doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped on, something to take credit for. He is God, but yet he comes and gets dirty and is humble and is able to share that grace and truth even when he was maltreated, even when he was treated like dirt. And we can learn from that, that we are to be like Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. And so as we wrap this up, we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This God himself is the truth, is the source of life, is the Son, the eternal Son who came to be one of us so that we could be one of him. By that I mean sons of God. He gives us life. This gospel message is not just for today or for yesterday. It's for every day. We would do well to remember what the purpose of his coming was for, right? That we were sinners, haters of God, lost, but yet he himself went to the cross, humbled himself, died the death, not just a death, but the death, the worst kind of a death, so that you and I can have life. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we'll be holy and blameless. Can we do that? So as we conclude, I want us just to think of this. Make sure that you have the right Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is God, who John tells us is God, who was with God, the second person of the Trinity, the source of life. Because Jesus is God and your creator, are you and I living as if he's my creator and my God? And just think of what Pastor Brian preached not too long ago about the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. Are we living in a way that glorifies him when nobody's watching? He knows everything. He sees everything. He knows what you're going to do before you do it and before you say it. So are you and I living as if he's God and my creator? Are you and I spending time in his written word so that we can get the, know, to know the incarnate word who lives in us now through the spirit so that we can love him better and love others better? And are we being gracious, never compromising the truth, but also speaking the truth in grace? I'll leave you with that. There's so much more that could be said. In fact, my mind was going uh, everywhere and thinking about where we're going to go with this um, when I was writing this. But um, let's think about that and remember that Jesus came, that we may have life, and to reveal the Father, that we may become children of God. But all the grace, all the glory goes to God. Let's pray.